Today, we're talking about personal influence in business and even in your community and family. Our expert guest has found that one of our biggest issues with power is not understanding it and thus not using the influence we have. It's Ron Carucci on the Manage Your Message podcast. Welcome to the Manage Your Message podcast, where professionals come for ideas and inspiration to grow by talking about their businesses more effectively and getting lots of other people to do the same. Here is your host, consultant, professional speaker, and author, Jim Carr. Come on in, and thanks for joining us. I'm Jim Carr. Welcome to our growing group of subscribers to the podcast. We also know there are a lot of new listeners. As I shared in episode zero, the why of the podcast is to offer you a fresh look at messaging and management and to share with you some practical ideas for using them to grow your business because growth comes easier when you're a message manager. Today, we're talking about personal influence. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, in my view, it's neither, but it certainly is a very important thing. If you want to advance your career, if you want to improve your community, if you want to make the world a better place, well, you can't do that without understanding power and influence and how to use them. Ron Carucci is here to help us sort all of this out. Ron is the owner and managing partner of Navalent, a consultancy that helps organizations and their leaders strengthen their path to the aspirations they want. You might know him as the author or co-author of eight books, including the bestseller Rising to Power. He's made a couple of very good TEDx talks, a regular contributor to Harvard Business Review and Forbes, and Ron is regularly featured in top media such as Inc., CEO, Magazine, Business Week, Fortune, and many others. He's worked in more than 30 countries with heads of state and heads of corporations, but also heads of small churches and community organizations. Ron, we have not had the pleasure of meeting in person yet, but we know a lot of the same great people. Just so you'll know, several of those great people said that I would be a complete knucklehead and missing the boat if I didn't work hard to include you on the Manager Message podcast. So not wanting to be a knucklehead. Ron Carucci, welcome to our big messaging show. Jim, it's great to be with you. Thanks so much for having me. Congratulations on launching a great show. I'm thrilled to be here, and I hope after we finish chatting, you don't feel like a knucklehead for having me, but I'm looking forward to a great chat. <laughs> sure. This is going to be terrific. So glad to have you here. We talk on this show about messages and management, personal habits to follow. I found interesting, you were a communications major at NYU, and you have worked over the years in a number of consulting and advisory roles. How did you come to be interested in the topic of power and influence and personal agency? Yeah, it's a great question. I find it so fascinating that people in the world who desire to have great impact and influence somehow miss the memo that you are the message. Right, what's coming out of your mouth will be remembered. You know, about three percent of it. Seventy percent of what people are going to remember is their experience of you and how you made them feel and think. Whether you're leading ten million people or you're sitting across the desk from somebody you're doing their accounting for, your presence, your credibility, your trustworthiness, your ability to change minds and hearts, your ability to influence good or change of any kind is all predicated on you as the instrument of that impact. And I'm always baffled by how many people have done the work to tune that instrument, commensurate with what they say they want to do, 
being passionate about a cause or passionate about your work, you may be the most passionate dry cleaner in the world. But people walk up to your counter with their clothing and they feel like they can't trust you with their clothing. It won't really matter how much you love cleaning them. We're all a walking billboard, right? All of our lives convey something. The question becomes what? What is it we want our lives to say? The particular topic of power, I think we all know today in the public arena, socially, politically, it's a painful topic because we see so much misuse of it. But in a 10-year longitudinal study of more than 2,700 leaders we conducted, which eventually became our book, Rising to Power, we wanted to understand when leaders or people are given power, what is their inclination with it? What are they more predisposed to do with it? And of course, we all know about the misuses of power. We see the self-interest and self-gain, the immoral, unethical misuses. But what was shocking to us was that was not at all the greatest misuse of power. The greatest misuse of power was the abandonment of it. People so fearful of using it, so fearful of having agency in the world that they chose not to. And instead, they would use counterfeits to purchase the intimacy or loyalty or trust of other people. When you say counterfeits, are you thinking just tactical sorts of things or little hacks or kind of manipulative tools? Very manipulative tools, looking empathic, looking curious, sounding very expert and authoritative, politicking, giving people what they want or saying yes to things or telling people what they want to hear. And some of that is not motivated out of self-interest. Some of it, it's motivated out of self-protection. People are fearful, anxious, fearful of rejection, worried about causing conflict, too fearful of disappointing people. So a lot of it's born from other insecurities besides getting what I want. It doesn't make it any less manipulative, and it doesn't make it any less destructive. I do respect that there are two vectors to get there, and more people do it out of self-protection and fear than they do out of self-gain or self-interest. Interesting. Do you think we get hung up in the language a little bit when we start talking about things like power or even influence? Some people think of that in a manipulative way or equate it with coercion. But at the same time, as you mentioned, people want to have an impact. So does the language somehow get in the way? Is that why people don't fully think about the type of influence that they want to have and the potential that they have for power? I think there's a lot of truth there, Jim. I do think people hear the word power and they understandably associate it with places they've seen it abused or they've been on the receiving end of it being misused. I think we are too prone to excuse the backboneless people, the people who are just doing out too many yeses or telling you what you want to hear. We're more quick to write that off as just weakness. And there are as many character flaws there as there are with those who abuse it for self-gain. But I do think we got of your language. You know, if you want to have agency in the world, if you desire to create change, whether that's change in someone else's life as a consultant or a coach or a leader or change in the world through some incredible cause you care about to help the marginalized, the underprivileged or the disadvantaged or people who are overlooked often, or you're trying to lead a family or you're leading a classroom of students, anywhere you're trying to have influence and trying to impart new thinking, trying to broaden a mind or perspective, you are influencing, you are using power and do well to use it responsibly and never assume people will just give you the benefit of the doubt, that they'll just inherently trust you and your good motives because you think you're worthy of that trust. It's a noisy, noisy world out there. There's a lot of people talking, a lot of people sharing ideas, really good ideas, probably some of the same ones you care about. And so to not only have the impact you want, but to stand apart from others with similar thinking, it takes a lot of work. And you have to really hone that influence and that credibility and the ability to articulate and embody those messages and live them out and model them in ways that 30 years ago wasn't quite as required because it wasn't as noisy and cluttered. We're talking to Ron Carucci here on the podcast. You were mentioning 
the research that was underpinning one of your books, the one Rising to Power. Uh, and you talked about, you studied, uh, was I think nearly 3,000, about 2,700 business professionals over a long period of time. And I noticed in one of your TEDx talks, quoted a figure that I found a little discouraging. And I think it would be really interesting to drill down in. Uh, you said that more than half of the people who take on positions of greater responsibility in their organizations wind up failing in the first 18 months. And so let's talk about what failure in that context means. And then you went beyond that and looked at the factors, the capabilities that basically explain who succeeded and who didn't succeed and what you've learned in that research. Yeah. So, you know, it started out personally for us because somebody we had been working with who was seen as having incredible promise and potential, you know, in within nine months had been fired and we were devastated. The CEO of that company more than subtly inferred that I was partially responsible for not having better prepared him. And so we wanted to come in and investigate what could have possibly happened? How could we have possibly misjudged such great potential? And turns out it's a wonder anybody succeeds when they take on greater influence, given how many landmines are put in the way by the organizations or the communities or the schools themselves. But the great news was, to your point, Jim, that the data also isolated for us four very significant patterns that no matter how we cut the data up, rose to the top as being what's set apart these leaders. And I think that there are capabilities all of us can adopt and learn, but the greatest influences were good at all of them. The first one was context. And so these people knew their audience. They knew who they were trying to influence. They didn't just come in to impose new thinking. They knew that the people they were trying to influence had as much to change in them as they had to change in those they cared about influencing. Being curious, asking questions. Don't just come in assuming that people need your ideas, but what have you done to study them? Have you become students of the context that you want to have impact in and what it needs and how it adapts? And then have you adapted yourself accordingly? The second one was breadth. Typically, any place we want to have influence has factions and fragments, organizations, schools, politics. We see this terribly today. There are warring factions at, at seams of communities, in families between parents and kids, in classrooms between social statuses or types of personality or jocks versus musicians. I mean, we just we see factions all over the place. The greatest influences had the kind of what we call breadth. They could bring these people together. They could bring the seams together. They could build bridges rather than doing things to reinforce the fragmentation. They could create cohesion. They could create connection between people. And they built coalition around them. They looked for the places where there were broken bits, figured out a way to unify them. The third was what we call choice. These are the folks that could make hard decisions. It wasn't just that they knew how to choose well, but they could say no. They weren't afraid of disappointing people. They knew that to have great influence, you had to focus. You have to set and keep some priorities. You can't just flick between ideas, between priorities. You can't overcommit. Too many people who want to have influence have a need to please, have a need to say yes. They have a need to make other people happy. They overcommit and say way too many yeses rather than being able to say no so that the yeses they have made actually count for something. So if you're somebody who has a, a need to please people, you may be diluting your own influence because of it. And the last was what we called connection. These are the people that had, you know, we all have them in our life, but we all see them, right? You just want to be around them. You want to follow them. You want to support them. Goodness just follows them and you just want to be near them. And they have amazing relationships with people above them, below them, alongside them. 
And the interesting thing about this set of people was that the way they prioritized their relationships wasn't about who they needed to network with to get something from. But these people actually focused on the places they could contribute, the places where they could make life better for somebody else. They prioritized their relationship based on who they could help succeed not who could help them succeed. And people knew that. People knew that if you were around this person, you're going to learn, you're going to improve, you're going to excel. And in so doing, people wanted to support them. And their influence grew because of how much they impacted other people. So breath, context, choice, connection, any one of those is difficult to learn. It may feel like mastering all four of them feels almost impossibly daunting. But the reality is these people did. And they started early. These were not some magical genetic material that these people were blessed to be born with. These were things that were forged through lots of experience and hard work from very early in their careers. So by the time they got to the place of being afforded broad influence, they were ready. It's interesting, Lynn. Let's pause there for a moment. It's really important. These factors that came in from pretty exhaustive research with real people over a period of time who had been put in these positions of more responsibility. So the four factors were context, which has a lot to do with knowing your audience and the people you could serve. Breadth, really understanding the larger environment and ways to build more understanding and common ground. The third was choice, which meant the courage to make tough decisions. And then the fourth was connection, which is really being seen as someone who wants to help others. Sounds like there's a certain gravitational attraction people have to someone who has that capability of connection. And so all of these things together, which as you mentioned, they're not inherent. We're not born with any of these. It's something that needs developing over time. Did you find in your research that any of these were more or less important or was it kind of a connected set that tended to drive either success or lack of success? I think it's a great question. I tell people what makes these hard is that it's one thing with four parts. It's not four things. Even though you might isolate certain skills to learn them individually, one integrated set of influence tools. But I will say that when it comes to failure, context and connection caused faster failure. Meaning that if you fail to ignore the context and just went in at a bona china shop or just unmindful of the situation you were in, or if you failed in relationship, meaning you came across as exploitative or self-interested, or you were not there to care, but were there to take, people backed away from you. So those two factors, you know, in the in that sort of 18-month failure window, if you were going to fail earlier, it was probably a failure of context or connection. Breadth and choice were longer failure factors only because it depended on the context. So if you were in a situation where there was already lots of factions and fragments, and nobody else was building cohesion, if you just blended in, eventually you'd have to succeed in other factors, you, you would fail. If you were in a, an environment that was very ineffective at making decisions and prioritization, your failure wouldn't be as noticed, right? So it would take longer, and then the failure becomes relative. If other people suck at it more than you do, you might not stick out so much. I don't know if this was part of your research or maybe just an observation from the depth of experience that you have in this yourself, but you know, people can come to this new level of responsibility, this new level of influence through different ways. So it could be someone who's taking over the family business, could be kind of by virtue of the family connection, how others see this person in terms of where they generate their authority. Others are positioned, you know, you've seen this a lot in organizations, someone is brought in as the change agent designed to shake things up. Someone else may have a source of power through their expertise, 
you know, product expertise or an audience expertise, whatever the case may be. Does the source of that power or that elevated position relate to these or, or does it simply <laughs> expose what some of the factors may come into play? I think it's the latter gym that exposes them. Because I think if you wait until you have that influence to start having to learn these, it's too late. I think the pathway to you know, that influence, whether it's you're an individual solopreneur, you know, helping people market themselves better, or you're uh, an author, or you're taking over a small business, or you're rising up in an organization, regardless of the pathway to that influence, you want to be gathering these things and building these muscles along the way. Nobody goes to the gym after not being in shape for 10 years and bench presses 500 pounds, right? So if you suddenly arrive at a place where you're required to have far more influence than you have the skill to exert, that's a risk, right? You're now in danger of failure because you're not prepared. But one of the greatest gifts you have when you come up against one of your own shortfalls, when you come up to a place where you know you recognize you're a little bit over your skis when it comes to the influence you have to exert relative to the capability you've built, is your vulnerability, your humanity, your flawedness is one of your greatest assets and sources of credibility. For goodness sake, if you've got a gap, do not try and hide it expose it. Put it right out there in the middle of the world. Let people see it. The world will give you grace and chance to close that gap if they know you know it. Where people start to get really uncomfortable and resent you is if it looks like you don't know about that gap or you're doing something to try and hide it. That's when you can really have a grave misstep. And then every one of your other gaps gets amplified in their mind, in the minds of those you're trying to have impact on. So for goodness sake, if you recognize that there's some place where you're falling short or some place where you haven't got quite the breadth or the context or the choice of the connection muscles you need, own it. Let the world know you're owning it. Let the world know you intend to work on it, how you intend to do that. And they'll give you the grace you need and they'll allow you to leverage the other areas where you do have strength and they'll believe you. But if you try and hide behind some image of yourself or some concoction of yourself, in this day and age where people of influence start distrusted, everybody assumes you have an agenda. Everybody assumes you're out to get something. Your ability to close that gap and then gain trust is going to be even more shorter lived. Ron, it seems there's a lot of intentionality and some self-awareness that's inherent in all of this and, and how to prepare yourself. As you say, not waiting until that crucial opportunity comes. It's beginning to build your capabilities now. What are some ways, because we all have blind spots. And we all know our motivations are pure, but are there ways that we can begin to identify if, say, one of those capabilities is weaker than the other three or some areas uh, to work on or misperceptions that people might have? How do we get some light on those blind spots? Well, my first thought would be I'm not sure that I would trust that our motivations are pure. I think if we're honest with ourselves, our motivations can often be mixed. And we try and exert a, a posture of altruism in our motivations when there, we do have things we want. And I think denying our own desires backfires. People know you have an agenda. It may have multiple parts to it, but just disclose it. Be transparent. I want to do this for you, and this is what I want for me. Just be clear on that. The other thing is get eyes on you, right? Having an extra pair of eyes on your life is vital. We are all notoriously bad observers of our own reality. Our faces are designed to see out. We don't have eyes on ourselves. We need other people to develop and grow. And so if you don't have a mechanism by which people can honestly tell you how they experience you, go ask. If it needs to be anonymous, make it anonymous. But find some way to get a routine pipeline of feedback into your life about how others see and experience you. If there's a gap between your intentions and your impact, and there often is, 
we can close it. But if you're just going relying on assuming that your motives or your intentions or the good things you want are what people are actually seeing and interpreting, that's dangerous because the likelihood is that they're not. Interesting. I was talking in an earlier episode with Chip Massey. He was a former FBI hostage negotiator. And this is a, a bit of a related topic, not quite the same, but we were talking about the power of empathy and how you need to have both expertise and empathy in order to build trust with other people. And we talked about, you know, there are times where uh, you did not have a deep relationship and it had a critical conversation. There are times where you might have a, a deep relationship, but really around how important empathy is. Well, when it comes to our expertise, our credentials, things about us, those are relatively easy to demonstrate, often to quantify. Empathy, true caring for the other person, outside of just saying that I care, probably doesn't go very far, is a harder thing to demonstrate. So along those lines of um, when you're talking about connection and those other capabilities there, how does that relate to empathy? And are there ways that you find professionals can show that in a way that's believable and true to themselves? Yeah. So it's a great question. I think question empathy lies in a larger suite of emotional intelligent you know, muscles. In psychology, we call it attachment. We all have some theory of some version of or some way we attach. We learn it early on in life in our primary caregiver relationships to attach to other people and how we build connection. I wrote a piece on influence in my Forbes column on these on six ways we attach. Empathy is certainly one of the critical ones. And, and I also wrote a piece for HBR called Is Your Emotional Intelligence Authentic or Self-Serving? A lot of times empathy can be used manipulatively, right? So we purchase intimacy by overcaring, or we work too hard to engineer a response from somebody else through an expression of empathy, and then it becomes contrived. So I think empathy, along with curiosity, along with advocacy, along with confrontation, along with expertise, there are a variety of ways we draw people to us and, and emotionally become in tuned to who they are. You have to have all those things in play. People knowing that we care about them is great. But when you're an FBI hostage negotiator, you're also manipulating empathy to make the hijacker believe you care about their needs. And you don't really care about the needs. You, care, you really care about getting the hostages free, right? So I do think that the danger of empathy is that it is very easy to contrive it and very easy to counterfeit it. I think we all have great BS barometers. People know and have some internal attunement to say, is this person using empathy as a means to an end or am I really at the center of their care? And I do think you've got to do some deep self-examination. If you've got some agenda behind your empathy, you have to own it because people will see right through it. And then the minute you get to the, so let me ask you this question. Do you want me, you know, and all of a sudden you go for the close and then suddenly people reorganize all the empathy experienced in the last hour or week from you into a new place. Oh, now I see. It was never about me. It's cruel. It's an interesting difference in context, as you say, for empathy. Chip talked about what they would do at the FBI where you're right. It, it is an emotionally charged situation with zero prior relationship, and there's no future relationship beyond this incident that trying to diffuse versus if you're working with a sales team or a leadership team, his prior work as a minister, then you have deep relationships. And to your point, if it comes across as a manipulative form of trying to show empathy That'll catch up to you, right? Oh my gosh. And you and you can you can only fake it for so long, right? Sure. One hostage negotiation, you've got to get the job done, right? You have people's lives to save. It's a different thing. 
But in an ongoing place where you are wanting people to pay for your influence or pay you for something or stay married to you or follow you as a parent or be taught by you, your ability to genuinely show care, it doesn't mean you have to hide your own desires or hide your own needs or sequester your own aspirations. But it does mean you have to understand the balance of both and be honest about both. One of the other things, and part of this may be, Ron, uh, and by the way, message managers, listeners to the podcast, we will link to those Harvard Business Review and Forbes articles in the show notes so no one you know, no one wreck your vehicle. We'll make sure that uh, all that is there and so you can continue to learn from Ron Carucci. Ron, you have talked about, I noticed in some of your writings and some of your talks about asking for the story. And it was a way to really understand other people and the larger context. Could you explain that a bit and how that may translate, whether you're asking for the story from colleagues and and employees, or maybe asking for the story from customers or, or clients? In one of the TED Talks, I tell this story about a school teacher, one of the most popular but harder school teachers. People wanted to be in his class, even though he was a much more stringent, demanding teacher. The way he motivated people was by saying, tell me how you did that. And I think we have lost sight of gratitude as being one of the most powerful agents of influence we have available to us, and we so underuse it. People need to know that you understand that their contributions, their work is an extension of who they are. Often when I speak in front of audiences, I'll ask the question, how many of you have ever received a compliment that actually offended you? And usually more than half of the room will raise their hand. And it's because, and when I ask people, why did you find the compliment offensive. And it's because they had no idea what they were talking about. It wasn't sincere. They didn't understand what they were thanking me for. It felt obligatory. And I think so often we feel invisible. We feel unseen when people are attempting to try and see us. Our core hunger as human beings is to be seen and to be known, to feel safe by being who we are. And when we ask somebody to tell us the story behind something they've accomplished, it's honoring that the accomplishment, the achievement, the contribution, the sacrifice they made to do it is part of who they are. And when they tell the story, they become alive, they become animated, and they feel validated. They feel a sense of, I matter to this person listening to me. And it is one of the most esteeming, dignifying experiences we can give somebody is to let part of their story for some small period of their day matter to us. And we don't take the time. We, we're so rushed and so obligatory in our interactions. We do this, we swing by a high five, a boy, way to go. We send a text message, hey, hey, saying nice work. The reality is whatever it is we're esteeming took way more time than just that. And if we don't fail to understand what it required of the person, then we can't really appreciate it. Really interesting. And I would say there's nothing wrong with the you know literal or proverbial this bump or something like that along the way. But I'm thinking, I'm contrasting a couple of uh, examples that I've seen recently. One is someone who's kind of in the persuasion business, and this person is in the habit of telling everyone that they come across that they're awesome to the point of like, well, not, no, not everybody's awesome. <laughs> and it's, it's just kind of very general and becomes pretty bland and not inspiring or motivating. On the other hand, if it's specific and and heartfelt, as you say, tremendously powerful. I was helping a, a client with an offsite meeting. They had a bunch of teams that were deployed in lots of different places and coming together. But we were sharing some stories about specific, special things that different colleagues had done 
to make customers feel really special. And one, there was a story about how they made pains to thank a veteran. And that veteran had said, you know, no one's ever told me thank you before. And everyone was really affected by that and giving a lot of due credit to that colleague for doing something really specific, for taking extra time, for using language that made a big difference for a particular customer. So I think it comes to your larger point about gratitude, but it's not just a kind of a breeze by in the hallway, hey, uh, you're great. And they may be great, but taking some time to be really specific and saying something that you did and that reflects to me part of your character, part of your caring, that in fact, what makes you such a, a pleasure to work with or work for. Long way of saying that it seems like what you're saying, the specificity matters in all of that. You have to contextualize it. People need to know that you're not influencing generically, <laughs> you know, right? That this is not a shtick or some recipe or formula you're adopting. That in fact, you've taken the time to study them. You've taken the time to know who they are. You've been a student of their life and their desires. And they feel like they feel seen by you. They feel known by you. We hear it all the time. When you're in their presence, you feel like you're the only one in the world that matters. Well, there's a reason for that, right? Because you probably are in that moment. And people who make you feel that way, can't, you can't fake that. It's not just some magical you know, personality compilation that the people have. They do very specific things to make other people feel dignified and special and unique and important. And that's what great influence is about. When you help people discover the best versions of themselves, people become better at who they are supposed to be because of you. That's all the ultimate and lasting influence. Ron, I have a bit of a loaded question for you. And uh, so I would not expect you to name names unless it's in the, you know, very much the positive. But you work a great deal in your practice on developing executives for leadership roles. And so there are a lot of corporate training and development practices and a lot of tools and techniques and the like. When you look across that landscape, are there things in the kind of typical training and development world that you think work pretty well? And are some areas that you think a lot of those programs are missing? Leadership and influence is something you, you learn by doing it, not by talking about it. It's very difficult to learn to do this well academically or in theory. So I don't know that the classroom is a place where you can really excel at this. It's a, you can learn some great theories and principles and techniques or models and frameworks. You, know, you can learn about human behavior and psychology and all the neurosciences behind relationship. But I think ultimately, at the end of the day, you got to be with other people. You have to be in conflict. We all have triggers, right? You have to be triggered to know what triggers you to manage those triggers and tapes. You have to know your own narratives. I think a therapist would be a far better place to spend your money than a workshop. Because if you're going to fine tune your own instrument, you know, three years ago, I hired a coach for me. It was the, one of the best decisions I ever made. I need to take my own medicine. I need to learn about my own voice in the world and how I wanted to cultivate it and how well I was or wasn't curating or stewarding it. And it was a phenomenal decision. Sure, you don't always hear things you want to hear, but better to hear them from somebody you're trusting rather than somebody you, you were hoping to build a relationship with and you failed. So I certainly think getting other eyes on you, getting other people to be able to narrate the unfolding version of your story is important. I think training can play a role in that, but I certainly don't think it's a predominant one. Even a expert great coach uses a coach 
<laughs> so, Ron Carucci, could you tell us a bit more about what Navalent does and other ways that we can learn from you and how you work with clients? So, I love to keep the conversation going. I'll put the links also in your show notes. We have a free ebook. If you want to come visit us at Navalent, N A V A L E N T dot com, a free ebook on how we lead transformation. So, if you want to affect great change in the world, we'll give you our playbook. So, you just come to navalent.com slash transformation and you can get that free ebook. And we also have a great blog and we have a quarterly magazine. We publish lots of great stuff on influence and leadership and teams and relationships in there. You can download past episodes of the magazine that all have those themes in them. So come visit us at navalent.com. I'm also on LinkedIn, also on Twitter at, at Ron Carucci. So would love to keep the conversation going. Thank you very much. Ron Carucci on the Manager Message Podcast. It was a real pleasure to have you here. Jim, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. If you're enjoying the podcast, then make sure to join our growing list of subscribers so you don't miss an episode. And please take a short moment to rate and review. Frankly, the five stars are the only ones that matter. That helps more professionals learn about the podcast. And I'd appreciate it if you would share with any friends or colleagues that you think would get value from it as well. For more insights you can use in your business, I offer the Message Manager Memo. It's a free weekly email with practical tips. It's a short read that I believe you'll enjoy having. You can sign up at jimcar.com. That's J-I-M-K-A-R-R-H.com. If you have ideas for the podcast or the message manager memo or anything else, or if you'd like to talk about my speaking to your organization or perhaps working with your team, then you can email me directly at jim at jimcar.com. Until next time, thank you, message managers. Thanks for joining us on the Manage Your Message podcast with Jim Carr. You'll find show notes and other resources at managermessagepodcast.com and jimcarr.com. Please help us serve you and other message managers by subscribing to, rating, and reviewing this podcast. And connect with Jim on LinkedIn and on Twitter at Jim Carr. Until next time, we hope your business message is shared well and often.